Please pray with me as we prepare to hear God's word together. Your law, O Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony, O Lord, is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts, O Lord, are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment, O Lord, is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of you is clean, enduring forever. Your rules, O Lord, are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. By your word, merciful Father, revive our weary souls. Make our simple minds wise. Rejoice our troubled hearts and enlighten our darkened eyes. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. A couple of months ago, I had the opportunity to preach and preached on Ruth chapter 1, and then there were a couple evening services where I preached through Ruth chapter 2 and 3, so this is your first time hearing me. You get the end of the story, and you can go back and read the previous three chapters this afternoon. But here is the word of the Lord from Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the matter, manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. 
Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Brothers and sisters, what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 15.4 is still true today. God has lovingly given you his word so that you might have hope. Do not think that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is just something that was for people who lived a long time ago. No, God had these things written down for your instruction and encouragement as well. And their usefulness, their profitability for encouragement and for instruction, have not faded with time, for their truth and their power are as eternal and potent as the one from whom they were breathed, the everlasting and almighty God. He has spoken, and he has preserved this spoken word so that you might have hope and endure. For as Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, we have to endure to the end. We can't run half of the race. We have to finish the race. But we won't endure if we do not have hope. Without hope, 
You will be like the seed in Jesus' parable that falls on the rocky ground that has no root in itself. And so when tribulation and persecution come, it, it falls away and dies. Therefore, you and I must fight every day to have hope. Like David fights in Psalms 42 and 43. Three times in those Psalms, David commands his heart, hope in God. And each time this command is a response to his self-imposed question. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And each time his answer is the same. Hope in God. In the midst of his sorrow and confusion, David wrestles to gain a firm grip on hope as if his life depended on it. For to lose hope is essentially to lose life. To live life without hope is like swimming in quicksand. The more you move, the further you sink, and you eventually just give up. And therefore, everyone in this world, is constantly searching for something to hope in, something solid to lay hold of, to pull them out onto safer ground. And yet everything in this world is like water. The more tightly you try and grip it, the more it just seeps through your fingers. Money, jobs, relationships, accomplishments, emotions, pleasures, pastors, they are all transient. They come and they go. So if your hope is in something earthly, then at best it is uncertain. You may or may not get what you are hoping for. And you cannot guarantee that if you do lay hold of it, that you will have it for very long. Quite the contrary, your only guarantee is that eventually you will lose it in death if not sooner. And so my question to you this morning as you sit there in your pew is, do you have hope? Do you have hope? Someone does. But whether you answer that question yes or no, my, my next question is the same. In what or in whom are you hoping? For even if you sit there and you say, Pastor, I don't feel any hope right now, that means you've placed your hope in something that either you feel you cannot attain or something that you've lost. So in what or in whom have you placed your hope? For if it is in something other than God himself, you will live every day in perpetual fear that you will lose it. And I have bad news for you. You will. David's command to his own heart was not just a simple general, David, be hopeful, have hope. It was hope in God. For he knows that all worldly hopes are a dead-end street. No matter where you turn, you will find that you have nowhere else to go. And so my aim this morning, as we finish the book of Ruth, is to direct you away from this world, to lift your gaze a little bit higher, and to show you your heavenly hope. For the book of Ruth is a story of hope. And I pray God will use it to strengthen your hope in him. Or lead you to place your hope in him for the first time this morning. And to that end, I will first make three observations from the text. 
And then I will offer three encouragements for you to hope in God that correspond to these three observations. So the first observation from Ruth chapter 4 is that Boaz's work of redemption that we just read about is an act of resurrection. Boaz's work of redemption is in one sense a work of resurrection. You may recall that this story began with God emptying a woman named Naomi. There was a famine in her homeland, so she had to leave. She lost her food, she lost her home, and so she goes into Moab. And there, God takes away her husband. And after ten years, he takes away both of her sons. And so when Naomi returns to Bethlehem at the end of chapter 1, she is feeling bitter and hopeless. She tells the women of Bethlehem, I don't want you to call me Naomi anymore. For Naomi means pleasant. I want you to call me Mara. For that means bitter. However, in the next two chapters, God begins to slowly fill and restore Naomi. And he does this primarily through the everyday faithfulness of her daughter-in-law Ruth, who followed her back from Moab and from a relative of hers in Bethlehem named Boaz. And as time goes on, eventually Ruth, Naomi, I should say, comes up with a plan for Ruth to marry Boaz because Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was a relative who was responsible to protect and provide for the family, not just the immediate family, but the extended family, so that wealth and land were not lost and so that the name of that family might endure through offspring. So at the end of chapter 3, Ruth proposes to Boaz, and she asks him to redeem all that belonged to Elimelech, who was Naomi's husband, and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, the latter being Ruth's deceased husband. And Boaz agrees. He says, yes, I will do this. But there is another relative who's even closer to Naomi, and so he has the first right of redemption. So I will ask him, and if he says no, then I will do exactly as you have requested. So chapter 4 begins on the very same morning that chapter 3 ends. Boaz returns to the city, and he sits down at the, the city gate, because that's where official business took place. The city gate was like the town hall and a courthouse all wrapped into one. And he calls for some elders and some witnesses so that they can verify the transaction that's about to take place. And as so often seems to happen in this story, right as Boaz gets to the gate, the exact person that he wants to talk to shows up. And he asks him to sit down. And he explains the situation with Naomi and Naomi's land. And he says, do you want to buy this land? And your other redeemer says, sure, I'll I'll accumulate more wealth. That, that's no problem for me. But then Boaz adds one little detail. If you buy Naomi's land, you also have to take Ruth. And you have to raise up offspring so that Elimelech's name does not die out. Well, this changes things for this other relative. The cost of buying the property, sustaining Naomi, marrying Ruth, sustaining her, all of this was no longer fiscally prudent. 
For if he's required to marry Ruth and provide an heir for Elimelech, then that child would eventually inherit this land that he is purchasing. And quite possibly, this child will also inherit some of this other relative's existing wealth, which would take some of it away from the children he already had. So because, most likely because of this, he says, on second thought, you go ahead and do it. So this other relative gives up his right to redemption, and he passes it along to Boaz. And so then, after exchanging foot apparel, which is apparently the way you confirmed a deal in those days, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I closed on our house, and we had to sign away the next 30 years of our lives as we signed, I think, seemed like 100 forms. But as, even as I was doing that, I was thinking, I am so glad that I just have to write my name, and I don't have to accept their foot apparel or give them mine. Especially when you think that these guys are walking around in their sandals in the dust all day and they don't even have socks. So anyway, after this transaction and exchanging the foot apparel, Boaz declares before the witnesses exactly what he's done. He has bought all that belonged to Elimelech and Elimelech's two sons, which includes taking Ruth as his wife in order to perpetuate, or literally in the Hebrew, to raise up the name of the dead. And this is why I say that Boaz's act of redemption is in one sense an act of resurrection. For an Israelite understanding, as one commentator explains, the loss of land and heirs amounted to personal annihilation, the greatest tragedy imaginable. This is worse than death, that all of your possessions and no offspring are, are, are gone. So in a sense, Boaz and Ruth's offspring would raise Elimelech and Malon from the dead. It would save them from having their names cut off forever. So that's the first observation. The second observation is that Naomi's pleasant fullness at the end of the story far exceeds her bitter emptiness in the beginning of the story. Naomi's pleasant fullness at the end of the story far exceeds her bitter emptiness in the beginning of the story. As I mentioned before, in the beginning of the story, Naomi, lo Naomi loses everything, her home, her husband, her two sons, and any apparent provision for the future. And she is bitter because, as she claimed, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And I observed in chapter 1 that Naomi probably makes this declaration with Ruth standing right next to her, who had followed her and clung to her, coming back to Bethlehem. The pain of her suffering had blurred her vision to one of the ways that God was already working to fill her once again. And this irony is not lost on the women of Bethlehem at the end of the story, which we will soon see. But in chapter 4, verse 13, we read that Boaz takes Ruth as his wife, just as he said he would. He goes into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. This is... One of only two times in this story where the Lord is said to have explicitly, directly acted. 
He's, of course, acting throughout this. But this is one of two times where it says the Lord did this. The first was back in chapter 1, verse 6, where the Lord ends the famine. He brings food, and, and this is what leads Naomi to return to Bethlehem. And here is the second place. The Lord had made a way for food through famine, and now he is making a way for, for offspring through the barren womb of Ruth. Remember, Ruth was married for 10 years and was unable to have children. Now it says the Lord gave her conception and she has a son. But somewhat surprisingly, this son is considered Naomi's as much as it is Ruth and Boaz's. In verse 16, the child is given to Naomi to become the child's nurse. And speaking of the child, the women rejoice that the Lord has not left Naomi without a redeemer, one who will be a restorer of life and nourisher of her old age. In verse 17, they declare, a son has been born to Naomi. In chapter 4, the women see and remind Naomi that the Lord has actually been acting for her this whole time. Chapter 1, Naomi says, the Lord is against me. Chapter 4, the women say, look at all the Lord has done for you. And they especially want to highlight how the Lord has blessed Naomi through Ruth. They rejoice in Ruth's great love for Naomi. And they remark that Ruth has been more to Naomi than seven sons. See, in Israelite understanding, you, you read the Bible, you see seven is, is often the number symbolizing or signifying fullness, completion, perfection. And so to speak of seven, seven sons was a way to, to speak of the, the most complete, prosperous, and secure family. So Naomi had lost two sons, but she had gained much more in Ruth. Ruth was a better gift to Naomi than if... Naomi had had a perfect family. And so the story nears its conclusion with Naomi pleasantly filled as she holds little Obed in her arms. Her bitter night of emptiness has passed, and she can now see the light of God's love that had never actually left her. But as the author knew, this was not quite the end of the story. Which leads to the third observation. The third observation is that this story was much bigger than it first appeared. There was a lot more going on than Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi ever realized. See, as the final scene concludes, the author, he briefly zooms out. It's as if his camera lens has been zoomed in on this one little scene, and now at the end, he pans back. And he shows us a secret he has been keeping the whole time. For while this story has certainly been about God's work in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, it has also been about much more. For this small child, at the end, would become the grandfather of David himself, who would be Israel's most significant and greatest king. Now, we're given a clue that something bigger is going on when the elders start to pray for Ruth and Boaz. Back in verses 11 and 12, after Boaz declares his purposes of what he is about to do, the people pray 
for Ruth and Boaz. And they, they pray for three things. I'm just going to mention two of them. First, they pray that the Lord would bless Ruth with fertility. But in particular, they pray that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah, who were the two wives of the great patriarch Jacob. See, this is a big prayer. Leah and Rachel, along with their two maidservants, gave birth to 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in addition, they also pray that God would make Boaz's house like the house of Perez, who was the son of Judah and Tamar. In Genesis 38, we learn that Tamar, like Ruth, became a childless widow when God struck down her husband. Judah's son, who was named Ur, he was apparently a pretty bad guy, and so the Lord struck him down. But then, because because one of Ur's brothers would not fulfill his duty to raise up offspring for the dead, and the other brother was too young, Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute, and she sleeps with her father-in-law, Judah, and becomes pregnant with twins, one of whom was named Perez. And Perez and his descendants appear to have become the most prominent in Judah's line. So in total, the crowd is praying for the Lord to bless Ruth and Boaz with a prosperity and a prominence akin to some of the most significant ancestors in Israelite history. And this prayer clues us into the fact that something much bigger is taking place. And this is confirmed when we come across this genealogy ending with David. Now we see this story in Ruth in an entirely different light. As one commentator puts it, this genealogy links the events of the story with the line that would build the house of Israel more than any family since the time of Jacob, the line of David. So this is not just a story about how God provided offspring and preserved a small family in Judah. It is a story about how God provided a much-needed king and preserved a nation that was in rapid decline. You remember, this story takes place in the days of the judges, one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. And one of the refrains that you come across in the final chapters of the book of Judges is, and there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's giving you this sense, Israel needs a godly king. And God would provide one. But he would not do so through the heroic exploits of the judges like Ehud or Deborah or Gideon or even Samson. The Lord would provide this king through the everyday faithfulness of a Moabite widow and a faithful farmer who had no idea what God's ultimate plan was. They were part, a significant part, of a much bigger story than they ever realized. So these are the three observations. And in light of these three observations, I want to offer you three encouragements for you to place your hope in God. Encouragement number one. Hope in God, because your God raises the dead. 
Hope in God because your God, the one true God, raises the dead. The first observation was that Boaz's act of redemption was in a sense an act of resurrection. For by all appearances, it looked as if Elimelech's name and line was doomed to be cut off forever. But Boaz's willingness to redeem and and raise up the name of the dead was a demonstration of God's ongoing commitment to redeem and raise his people. In the history of redemption, God sends redeemer after redeemer to deliver his people from destruction. Again and again, he shows forth his steadfast love and his faithfulness by saving his people from certain annihilation. God has been and always will be committed to redeeming and raising up his people. And for those of you who know this history of redemption told in the scriptures, you know that all of these redeemers that the Lord sent, they were all a type of the one true Redeemer whom God was sent to fully and finally redeem and raise His people for all time. And that Redeemer is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus has delivered you from death. Your Redeemer fought death. He entered into the grave and He came out on the other side victorious. See, Boaz could perpetuate the name of the dead, but he could not physically raise the dead. Elimelech and Malon were still dead even after Obed was born. God, however, raised your Redeemer from the grave, and he has given him all power and authority to raise up his people along with him. And so if you put your hope in something other than God, you will lose it. For death will eventually take it from you. But if you put your hope in God, then not even death can take it from you. Because God raises the dead. And consider the one God sent to be your redeemer. The redeemer that Boaz first approached to deliver Ruth and Naomi said, I I can't do it. This costs too much, and I don't want to impair my own inheritance. But the Redeemer that God sent to redeem you willingly emptied himself of everything. He made himself nothing. He even gave up his life so that you could share in the fullness of his glorious inheritance as the Son of God. He willingly, joyfully gave it up that you might live and share in his inheritance. And that life and that inheritance can never be taken from you. For as Paul writes in Colossians 3, chapter 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, if you have your most precious valuables in your house, then if someone comes into your house, beats you up, which wouldn't be hard if I'm the one guarding the house, and takes it away, you're in trouble. But if what is most valuable to you is not in your home, but is off secure in in the world's safest vault, guarded by the strongest man, then it doesn't bother you if someone comes into your home. Sure, come on in, take it. This isn't what I love. 
And your life and inheritance are even more secure than that. For they are not even on the earth. They are with Christ. And they are guarded by God himself. So dear Christian, you are never hopeless if your hope is in God. Even when you feel hopeless, as Naomi did in the beginning of this story. See, your hope is not a subjective feeling. Your hope is an objective person. The reality and security of your hope does not waver with your feelings of hopelessness. You can wake up on Sunday morning and feel sky high. You can wake up on Monday morning and feel in the pit of despair. And your hope is just as secure either day. It has not wavered at all with your feelings. For no one can take Christ from you. And your hope can never die. It is a living hope. And it will live forever. For Christ will never die again. The Apostle Peter writes, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If your hope is in God, it is imperishable, and it is internally secure. For you are not safeguarding it by your own strength. God himself is safeguarding it for you by his own strength. Not even death can take it from you. Because your God raises the dead. That's the first encouragement. The second encouragement is this. Hope in God, because God's plan is much better than your plan. Hope in God, because God's plan is much better than your plan. We all make plans. We all have dreams. And we all want things to go according to those plans and dreams. The trouble is, they rarely do. We have minor disruptions that disrupt our day, construction on the way to work, flat tire, your kids not allowing you to get out of the house on time, coming down with a cold, someone speaking a hurtful word. All of these things can disrupt your day. And then there are major disruptions, which disrupt much more than one day. They can disrupt months. They can disrupt years. They can disrupt your entire life on earth. There is a scary medical diagnosis. You have chronic illness. There's infidelity and divorce. A lost job, a lost loved one. Unyielding depression or suffocating anxiety. See, in a 10-year span, Naomi faced major disruption after major disruption. Nothing was going according to her plan. And so according to Naomi, God was against her. But it was not that God was against her. It was that God had a different plan for Naomi than she had for herself. And while it was a much more painful plan, 
than Naomi would have liked. It was by far a much better plan. You see, our plans often aim much too low. We are seeking pleasures that are shallow, that are transient. Our plans are also limited in that we, we don't plan very far. We don't plan much more than five feet down the road because that's about as far as we can see. So our desires are too weak and our perspective is too limited. God, however, does not suffer from our natural and sinful deficiencies. He is aiming for something much higher. He is working for a good and a joy that is much deeper and fuller. And he knows all things. And therefore, he ordains famines in our lives because he knows it is the pathway to greater feasting. He breaks us because he knows that his healing will lead us to a greater health. And he slays us because he is not working for 5, 10, or even 70 years of pleasure and comfort on this earth. He is working to give you an eternity of pleasure at his right hand. Sin has brought pain into this world. We cannot escape it. But God has made that pain the path to the fullness of joy in his eternal presence. You and I would not have planned salvation through a cross because our plans usually mean trying to avoid as much suffering as possible. And so our plans would not have brought us life. But God ordained the pain and death of the cross because he knew it was the only way he could justly heal and raise us. God's plans may hurt more than your plans. They will also bring you an eternal weight of glory. The weight of glory we often seek is is no more than a little pebble. And he is seeking to give you the Himalayas. And so you and I must learn to trust that every detour and setback that confuses and troubles us is not leading to a dead end street. It is actually the course God has plotted to bring you into his eternal joy. God's plans are much better than your plans. And they are also much bigger. Which leads to our third and final encouragement. The third encouragement is this. Hope in God. Because you are a significant part of a bigger story. Hope in God because you are a significant part in a bigger story. Something much bigger was at stake in the story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. Something bigger than they ever realized. God was using the the everyday faithfulness of these people to produce Israel's much-needed king. Isn't that amazing? With all of the astounding, miraculous things happening in the days of the judges, God was doing his most significant work work through the lives of a hopeless widow, a foreign Moabite widow, and a farmer. They did not know what was at stake. They were insignificant by all worldly standards, and yet their lives were greatly significant. Their faithfulness mattered. They were part of God's redemptive plan. 
And if you know the story of the Bible, you know that this story was even bigger than the author of Ruth probably knew at the time. For we find this genealogy taken up again when we turn to the gospel according to Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, Ruth and Boaz are once again mentioned as the parents of Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David the king. But it does not end there. It continues until we come to a man named Joseph, who married a girl named Mary, and gave birth to a baby named Jesus. See, the faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz did not just lead to an offspring for Naomi who would be her redeemer and restorer of life. Their faithfulness led to another offspring who would be the redeemer and restorer of life for the entire world. Their faithfulness did not just lead to a much-needed king for Israel. Their faithfulness led to a much-needed king for the world, the one who would be the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. God used Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz as means to confirm his promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 that he would provide an offspring who would crush the serpent. God used Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz to bring about his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12.3 that through Abraham and his offspring, all the families, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz were a significant part of a much bigger story. And so are you. Because God still accomplishes His redemptive purposes through the everyday faithfulness of His weak and insignificant people. One thing that can cause you to lose hope is the belief that your life is insignificant. That it just doesn't matter. You're weak. You're foolish. But it's not insignificant. For first, in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, Paul tells the Corinthians, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has always placed his treasure in frail jars of clay like you and me. And so you and I matter because God made us, God saved us, and God chooses to use us for his good purposes. As John Piper says, For the Christian there is always a connection between the ordinary events of life and the stupendous work of God in history. Everything we do in obedience to God, no matter how small, is significant. It is part of a cosmic mosaic which God is painting to display the greatness of his power and wisdom to the world and to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So perhaps the pain and suffering that you are going through now or will go through another day is about something much bigger than you. Perhaps what you are going through is not only for your own sanctification and good, but it is also for the sanctification and good, perhaps even the salvation of someone else. 
perhaps God is using you to show forth his glory and goodness so that as you hope in God, so will those who see you. So, beloved, hope in God. For your God raises the dead. And his plan is much better than your plan, albeit more painful. And God has chosen you to be part of a much bigger story that is not about you. It is about a great God and his great salvation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I ask that even now you would open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things out of your word. Lord, I know that there are those here who are suffering, who are discouraged, who are in pain. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help them to see the sure and steadfast hope that is in Jesus Christ. That they would not trust in their feelings, but they would trust in your word. Lord, I pray for those here who have never placed their hope in you. May today, this very moment, be the day that they cast all of their anxieties upon you. They confess their sin and find the sweet forgiveness and joy that is only in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would... Guard our lives in Christ, that you would sustain us and preserve us. We must endure to the end, Lord, but it is only by your grace that we will endure to the end. So so make us endure to the end. We pray this for us as individuals, and we pray this for URC as a church. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.